Well, good morning. How are you today? Great. Uh, it's been a great morning already. Uh, we have baptisms at our uh, Burlington campus this morning. Had four great ones uh, at a first service, got a couple more at a second service. And so I'm a happy pastor today because uh, I just already had some, some great experiences of God's grace and how he's working in our church. And I uh, can't wait to see how he's going to do it here over the next hour or so. How about you? You ready? All right. Well, uh, before we get to the message today, I want to uh, make a couple of announcements about some, some big upcoming events uh, here at Harmony. The first has to do uh, with a workshop on sexual purity that we're going to be hosting on March 23rd at our Burlington campus. So uh, I don't think I need to convince you that the issue of sexual purity, uh, particularly for men, is a huge issue today. And uh, your leaders over the last year or so have just become convinced that we, we've got to do a, a better job of really addressing this issue. And so... Uh, uh, coming up on the 23rd, we're going to hold a workshop where we've entitled uh, Liberate, uh, where we're going to talk about this issue and hopefully we're going to equip men uh, to be able to address this issue, either for themselves or really for uh, people that they are ministering to, people they uh, know, uh, dads with, with sons, uh, people who are in small groups together, whatever the situation may be. So men, I just want to tell you, this is a, an event really for everybody, um, and, and I'm going to go certainly as a pastor, but I'm also going to go just uh, as a man uh, to, to one, to, to get help in this battle, and then two, also to be able to know how to address it and how to help others. And so we'll have more information uh, in, in the coming weeks, but guys, just kind of circle that on your calendar. It'll be just uh, for the morning. I think you're going to find it's going to be a great time uh, and really helpful as you seek to pursue Jesus in this area of your life. Second then, uh, believe it or not, and, and whether you, you know it really feels like it, but spring is on its way. Mm. We're going to trust in faith that spring is on its way, right? That, is, that it's coming. And with spring uh, comes really the b- biggest day of the year uh, here at Harmony Bible Church, and that is Easter Sunday morning. And so that's uh, two months away, April 21st this year. Uh, and at Harmony, we're going to have two services at each of our campuses at 8.30 and 10.30. So six services across our three campuses. It's going to be a great day. And I just want you uh, right now to commit to begin to to pray uh, and to begin to to think and and even to have some discussions uh, regarding who you can invite on that day. So we know since studies show uh, that people are very likely to say yes to an invite to come to church on Easter Sunday morning. So I want you to be thinking about inviting your one, just just one person that you uh, can invite so that they can come and they can hear the gospel and they can celebrate, hopefully with us, the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. So be thinking about that, and we'll talk more about that uh, in the weeks ahead as well, all right? So we're going to get into Ephesians, uh, but before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll get to work, all right? So so Father, uh, we come to you, and we have so much to be thankful for and to rejoice in, and uh, first and foremost, that's the gospel. And uh, we're going to talk about the gospel today, and, and Lord, I just want to pray that as a result of the next few moments that your word will work in us, uh, first of all, in understanding um, a depth of, um, of, of gratitude uh, for the gospel and what you have done for us. And I pray, Lord, that you will just um, really, really give us a love for, for the gospel, for what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. And I want to pray specifically for those who have, have come to Harmony today, uh, who have come in here not, not really understanding the gospel, not really grasping it. And, and ultimately, that means that they, they at this moment and this time, uh, do not know you. They're not in a relationship with you. I want to pray 
Father, I want to really just beg you uh, over the next few minutes to send your Holy Spirit to, to make dead people alive, to save people by grace, to show us how wonderful you have been to us through Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. All right, today uh, we're moving on to Ephesians 2, uh, where this week and next we're going to look at what many people consider to be the most important passage in the Bible. I, by the way, am one of those people. You know, of course, at this point that I have lots of favorite passages, but this one, and I really do mean this, this one is at the very, very top of the list. In fact, let me say this. If there was just one passage that I could have for you, the people of our church, to know and understand, it would be Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. So if God said to me, you know, uh, I'm going to give you one passage where uh, when your time and harmony is done, this will be the passage that your people will know and understand. I'm just going to give you one. This would be the one that I would choose. And it would be the one that I would choose because here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Paul gives us what we might call the ABCs of salvation. In this passage, he shows us more clearly than anywhere else in the Bible what it means to be saved. Now, as Christians, we, we talk a lot about what it means to be saved. We, we sing a lot about what it means to be saved. And we're even supposed to spend a lot of time telling others that they need to be saved. However, do we really know what it means to be saved? What, what does this word mean? This word is, is very much a church word. It's very much a part of our vocabulary. But what exactly does it mean? Well, what it means is what Paul's going to tell us in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. Specifically, he's going to tell us what we're saved from what we're saved by, what we're saved through, and what we're saved to. So, so that's actually the outline for the next two weeks, what we're saved from, by, through, and to. Now we're going to do the from, all right, and the by today, and then we'll come back next week, and you, you really need to be here next week as we talk about the through and the to as well. So with that in mind, let's start by reading uh, the passage. Please follow along with me. And if you, by the way, I just want to tell you, if you just want to kind of throw an amen in there as, as we go through, feel free to do that because uh, if you can read this passage and at least not to well up in your heart a little bit, something's wrong with you. All right? So let me just read uh, and you can follow along. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them." 
Now, let me say this. If you are um, a guest today or whether maybe you're relatively new to this whole Christianity thing, you're trying to figure it out, I just want to tell you that, that this is it, okay? This is Christianity. This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is a salvation, all right? So, so if, if you, you listen today and pay attention, you'll, you'll get what this whole deal is all about, all right? And it begins uh, with understanding what we are saved from. What are we saved from? Why do we need to be saved in the first place? Well, in verse one, Paul states uh, that we, uh, before we were saved, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, now by dead, he, he obviously doesn't mean that we were physically dead, right? So, so none of us here have ever been physically dead before. Now, by the way, here's what I know is gonna happen. Somebody's gonna come up to me after the service and say, well, there was this time... <laughs> Where I was in the emergency room and I flatlined, they resuscitated me and I was dead. Okay, I, I get that, all right, I get that. But really, none of us have ever actually been, been, been technically dead. Now, I will also tell you, by the way, every Sunday I look out about halfway through my sermon, there are some of you who I really question whether or not you are dead. I'm actually, you think I'm joking, I'm not, okay? There have been times where I'm like, that's questionable there, okay? I mean, they called the security team, but... Um, and I'll also say that uh, a few minutes into the sermon today, some of you are going to probably wish that you, you were dead, all right? But in actuality, none of us have ever been physically dead. So, so Paul's not talking about physical death here. He's talking about spiritual death. He, he means that we were in a condition where we had no relationship with God whatsoever. Probably the best description of this spiritual deadness Paul actually gives in verse 12, where he says that at one time we were without Christ. We were separated from Christ and without God and without hope in the world. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. That was the condition that we needed to be saved from. Now, I want to point out to you four important things that Paul tells us about this spiritual deadness in verses one through three. Number one, spiritual deadness is a condition that affects us all. In verse three, Paul says that we all once lived in this deadness. Now, that means that the you, when he says, and you, do you know who that you is? In verse one, that you is you, it's me, it's all of us. We all at one point were dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans 6.23 says that the penalty of sin is death. And since we're all sinners, that means that we all come into this world spiritually dead. Every single one of us. Now, I'm not going to spend any time today trying to convince you that you are a sinner. If you question this or doubt this, just ask the person to your right or to your left. They'll be happy, okay, to affirm that you are a sinner. And let me just tell you, we don't become a sinner when we sin, okay? We sin because we are sinners. We are children of Adam and Eve. And because we're children of Adam and Eve, every single one of us comes into this world a sinner. And because we're sinners, we are spiritually dead. Now, this doesn't mean, here's what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we're necessarily as bad as we possibly could be. It doesn't mean that we are all moral monsters. It, it doesn't mean that we aren't, uh, let me say it this way, that some of us aren't worse than others. It just means, it doesn't matter how good or bad we are or think that we are, 
we're dead. It doesn't matter because we, we're, we're just all spiritually dead before God. So let me give you uh, an example here. Suppose you visited the morgue uh, in downtown Chicago and you, you went there to view all the bodies in, in holding there, all right? So, so if you were to go to the morgue in Chicago, you would probably find someone who's just died of a heart attack and, and their body uh, might look like it's in pretty good shape on the outside anyway. And then there would be someone, because it's Chicago, of course, who's just died of a, of a gunshot wound and, and they probably would be a little disfigured. But then there would be somebody who's just been in a really nasty, car accident and they would be horribly disfigured and, and maybe even unrecognizable. So, so these bodies are in different shapes, right? But they're all in the same condition because they're all what? They're all dead. You see, see there are no degrees of dead. You're either dead or you aren't one or the other. And Paul's point here is, is that we all come into this world spiritually dead. Number two, spiritual deadness is a condition in which we're enslaved to all the wrong things, to the world, to the devil, and to our self-centered human nature. Now, you will note that Paul uses the word following twice in verse two, and really three times in the passage if you include the phrase carrying out in verse three. These words essentially they mean the, uh, all mean the same thing. They mean to be enslaved. They mean to be mastered or controlled by something. So when Paul says that we're following, that, that's kind of a weak word there. It's, in English, it's, it's kind of a weak word because really what it means is that these things are in control of us, that we do whatever the world, the devil, and our sinful flesh want us to do rather than what God wants us to do. Spiritual deadness is a condition in which we live, Paul says, as sons of disobedience instead of sons of God. Now, we could talk about um, each of these uh, things that enslave us uh, in great detail, but, but here's how I think we can see it uh, most clearly in our lives. Uh, we can see it in the fact that we're always controlled by selfish interests rather than by a love for God. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. It means to be controlled by the self, by what I want, rather than by what God wants. So here's where this started, all right? In Isaiah chapter 14, uh, Isaiah tells us that at the core of Satan's rebellion is I will. Here, here's what he says. You said in your heart, by the way, let me see if you can find out what the operative phrase in these verses is, all right? See, see if you can figure what that is, all right? You said in your heart, I will, oh, we've got it highlighted there, so we, we kind of cheated for here, right? This is Bible for dummies this morning, all right? Um, the dummies teaching is what you're, I know what you're saying, but here, here's what it says. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So Satan has an eye problem, but back in the Garden of Eden, he passed that eye problem on to us. Was Satan convinced Adam and Eve to say, I will, instead of thy will, human nature was corrupted, and now we all have an eye problem. We're all following Satan in his rebellion. Now, we may never put it like Satan puts it, but that's the reality of what goes on in the human heart, and it goes on in the human heart from birth. 
Now, we all love babies, right? We all love newborn babies, okay? And I need to tell you, even at my age, see a newborn baby, I begin to think, hey, I need to talk about e- to Eva. Maybe we need to have another one of those, all right? So, so not really, okay? Uh, but it's a fleeting thought, more and more fleeting all the time. But babies are cute and cuddly, and we love them. But let me ask you, is there anything more selfish than a newborn baby? Do newborn babies care about anybody but themselves? Do they not say over and over again, me, 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 I, I? Do they care about what their parents want? Do they care about what their parents need? Do they care about what their siblings want and need? No, they're consumed with themselves. Now, as we grow and get older, uh, we learn to, to hide this selfish nature, all right? So, so I, I know that for some people, it's really easy to see their eye problem. In, in fact, some of you are even giving kind of sideways glances at the person next to you right now, right? We, we know people, obvious, we can see this in culture, who have an eye problem. But the reality is, is that for Every person, even the people who we might term good people or think they are good people, in their spiritual deadness, they do the good that they do, not out of love for God, but out of love for self. They do it for selfish interest. Let me give you some examples, all right? Consider some of the reasons people live what we might call a good life. They do so, again, not out of a love for God, but because it makes them feel better about themselves, or because it makes them feel superior to others, or because they want to put or think that they can put God in their debt. In fact, this is the reason that some people are in church this morning. They go to church not because they have a burning desire and passion and love for God, but rather because it's going to make them feel good or because it'll make them feel that they're better than the people who aren't going to church or because they think that that will make God put them or they will put God in their debt, that God will have to then do what they want to do. This is, by the way, why people who, when life doesn't go right for them, they get bitter and angry at God because they think, hey, I've lived this way. I've done this. I've kept myself pure. I've gone to church. I've given generously. I've done all of these things. And now life's not working out the way I want it. And so they get bitter and angry at God because they think that their goodness should have put God in their debt. That's the way that the human heart is. You see, we can rebel against God, yes, in our wickedness, we also can rebel against him in our goodness. By the way, I'm speaking for plenty of experience at this because for years in my life, okay, I was an expert at rebelling uh, uh, towards God out of my goodness. Many of you, by the way, I believe, were probably the same. We can rebel out uh, against him either out of our evil or wickedness or our goodness. And so I just really want to point out, if you, if you haven't gotten this yet, that it's possible to be a church attender uh, and to be dead in your trespasses and sins. It's possible to look alive on the outside, but to be dead as a doorknob spiritually on the inside. Now, the big point here, though, is that to be spiritually dead means to be enslaved to your sinful nature. It means to be controlled by your desires to live for yourself and for your glory rather than for God and his glory. Number three, spiritual deadness is a condition that leads to eternal destruction. Paul ends verse three by stating that as a result of our spiritual deadness, we were children of wrath. 
This means that before we were saved, we were facing eternal judgment for our sin. Every single one of us. Notice what he says, like the rest of mankind, right? Every single human being at one point by nature was facing an eternity in hell. Now, let me be clear about something here, all right? Contrary to popular opinion, we, we, we don't come into this world headed to heaven. To put it another way, our default destination isn't heaven, it's hell. And so this is ultimately what we need to be saved from. We need to be saved from a spiritual deadness that leads to hell. I think you, you recognize here, getting this, what I just said there is not very popular. This would not go well on CNN. Okay, what I just said, all right? This is not acceptable in our culture to say that people are wicked, that people are evil, and that people are on their way to hell. But people need to hear it because it's only when we hear it and we come to realize it that we can actually be saved. The gospel has to be preached, and the gospel includes the fact that by nature, we were all on our way to hell. Now, I know uh, at this point, you might be thinking, well, aren't you a little ray of sunshine here this morning? (laughs) Maybe you come in today and uh, you're like, I really was hoping, really needing a word of encouragement, and and this is just about the least encouraging sermon I have ever heard. Well, guess what? Uh, It's about to get worse, all right? So number four, (laughs) spiritual deadness is a condition which we can do nothing about which we can do nothing about. Paul uses the word dead here in Ephesians 2 to illustrate that there is nothing that we can do to remedy our situation. Again, what can dead people do? They can do nothing. We can do nothing to save ourselves from going to hell. Humanity, apart from God, all right, is hopeless and helpless. That's Paul's point in verses one through three. It's not that eventually we're gonna get this thing figured out, that eventually we're gonna be able to find our way back to God, that if we just improve enough or we just get enough help or we just figure out the formula, we will be able to save ourselves. That is never gonna happen. That is completely and totally impossible. Now, this this is depressing. It's meant to be depressing. I mean, rightly understood, this is the absolute worst news possible. And so you might be asking, why are you spending so much time on this point? Why spend so much time on the bad news? Well, here's why. Until you fully acknowledge the bad news, you will never fully know and love the good news. Until you grasp how desperate your situation was, you will never grab hold of how wonderful the gospel is. What we need, friends, really more than anything else here at our church, is we need a greater love and appreciation for the gospel. We we need a greater joy in the gospel. We're never gonna get that until we recognize how desperately we needed it. Here's how Charles Spurgeon put it. He said this. He said, the reason we think too lightly of the Savior is we think too lightly of sin. Only he who has stood before his God, feeling the rope of God's judgment about his neck, will be the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him. I really do believe that our greatest need 
and our church is to have a greater love for the gospel. And if we're going to have a greater love for the gospel, then we have to understand and we have to appreciate what we've been saved from. And what we've been saved from, Paul tells us here, is a terrible spiritual deadness that was leading us to hell. So there's lots of bad news in verses one through three. But guess what? We have now made our way through the bad news and it's all uphill from here. Okay? And, and, and it begins, the, the uphill journey begins, okay, to, uh, with, with these two words, by what we might call uh, the greatest two words in the English language. Note how verse four starts. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, what happened but God? When we were dead, God decided to do something about it. And what did he decide to do about it? He decided to save us by grace. Now, there's a whole lot for us to talk about in verses four through nine. Uh, That's why we're taking two weeks to do so. But the first thing I want you to know is that Paul's main point here is that we are saved by grace. It's interesting. He states this twice, uh, and it's so important to him that he actually interrupts his flow of of thought here in verse nine to burst forth with this statement. You you notice there what he says in verse five, all right? He's going through, and it really doesn't fit in his train of thought, but he's so passionate for us to get and to understand that we've been saved by grace that he just inserts it right in the middle of what he's talking about. So here's what we gotta get, all right? If you get nothing else, These two weeks, you have to get that we are saved by God's grace and by his grace alone. We are saved contributing absolutely nothing to our salvation. In fact, let me at this point give you a a summary of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. The summary is this. When it comes to salvation, we do 100% of the sinning and God does 100% of the saving. Did you get that? When it comes to salvation, all right, what did you contribute? You contribute 100% of the sinning, and God contributed 100% of the saving. Now, with that in mind, here's how Paul says salvation works in verses 4 through 7. He says that when we were spiritually dead, by his grace, God did three things for us. He um, made us alive with Christ. He raised us up with Christ, and he seated us in heaven with Christ. Now, operative phrase there is with Christ, and this really goes back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago in the opening sermon of Ephesians regarding union with Christ. So if you weren't here with us uh, for that sermon, let me just um, uh, remind you, or maybe just explain to you what it means to be in union with Christ. To be in union with Christ means to be joined with him through faith so that what is true of him is also true for you. You see, when we place our faith in Jesus, when we believe that he is the perfect son of God who died and rose again, then the Holy Spirit joins us with Jesus spiritually so that what is true of him is also true for us. So what Paul's saying then in verses four through seven is that when God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him new life, he also raised us from the dead and gave us new life, All right? So what we celebrate on Easter is that when Jesus came out of that grave 2,000 years ago, we came out of that grave with him. Although we were dead, 
When Jesus came out, all right, we came out spiritually with him. We were raised up with him, and then we were seated in heaven with him. Spiritually, we've been raised with Jesus, and now we're seated with Jesus in heaven. Now, what exactly, though, does that mean, like, from a practical standpoint? Let me talk to you about what that practically means. First, it means that the bad news no longer applies to us. We're no longer spiritually dead, separated from God, and facing the penalty for our sins. We're no longer children of wrath, but now we're children of God. And I have to ask you this morning, anybody want to say amen to that? All right, right, so I'm not sure you're, okay, that's okay. I'm not sure you're quite getting it. You were dead and buried. You were gone. You were hopeless. You're separated from Christ. You're without God. You were without hope. You were a lost cause. You were going to spend eternity in hell, but in grace, God raised you up. He raised you from the dead so that you're now seated in heaven with Christ. Anybody want to say amen to that? Okay, so I'm, I'm not sure we're still getting it, okay? So uh, let me give you an illustration here. L- let's suppose that you decide this afternoon you're going to go get your taxes done, all right? And as you are headed to the tax preparer, uh, you're really fearing the, the worst. You're feeling some really, really bad news. You, you know that uh, maybe you didn't have enough taken out of your check this past year. Maybe you climbed into the next tax bracket. Maybe you didn't plan really, really well. And you're convinced you're going to get like this huge, huge tax bill. But when you uh, talk to your tax preparer and they add up all the numbers and they do all their, their work, they come back and they say, hey, I've got some really, really good news for you. You're going to get a huge tax return. I want to ask you, would you be rejoicing at that moment? Would you be saying, this is wonderful, I, I, I love this, all right? I thought I was going to get bad news, but I'm getting really, really good news. Well, if, if, I know, by the way, I know you would rejoice over that. All right? You go out to dinner, okay? You think about all the things that you could buy. You, you'd, be, you'd be set for the rest of the week. You'd be on a high for the rest of the week. I'm just telling you that that good news doesn't even compare whatsoever in any way to the good news that we see here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. You know what I long for one day um, here? Maybe this will happen. Um, I was at the Iowa Northwestern game, basketball game, two Sundays ago. Uh, I don't know if you you know what happened there, but Iowa was down 15 points with less than uh, five minutes to go, and they came back, and right at the buzzer, Jordan Bohannon hit a three-pointer to to win the game, all right? And I'm just longing for the day when we talk about things that really matter, people in our church celebrate the way people celebrated over a stupid college basketball game. (laughs) Okay. Not there yet, but, we'll, but maybe we'll get there. Right. Um, second, it means we're no longer enslaved to the world, the devil, and our self-centeredness. All right? It means we're no longer under their control. Now, this doesn't mean that we still don't have to do, do battle with these things. It doesn't mean that we don't have to fight them tooth and nail. In fact, we're going to see in chapters 4 through 6 that Paul's going to show us very clearly that the Christian life uh, is a battle, okay? It's a fight. The Christian life is war. 
But the reality is that for believers, we fight now from a, from a position of strength, not a position of weakness. We fight from, Jesus Christ is already one, all right? And so, so there's still guerrilla warfare going on. We, we still have to try and subdue the enemy here now. We, we still have to fight against them, but we don't fight from, from, from a position where we're going to lose. We're gonna fight from a position where we know that we're going to win. Paul talks in, in, in this passage about the fact that we were following the prince of the power of air. Well, we still have to fight that prince. We still have to fight the devil, but we do so with the king of the universe living inside of us. So so I want to speak to those of you uh, today uh, who are really uh, struggling this morning with a specific sin. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's worry. Maybe it's anger, whatever it is. All right. And, And many of us have these battles going on right now. If you're a believer, brother or sister, uh, if you've been made alive through God's grace, then you need to know that you don't have to succumb to that sin. Maybe the devil's onslaught seems specifically powerful right now, but brother or sister, you don't have to surrender. You don't have to give in. You've been released from the stranglehold of sin in your life, and through the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, victory is possible today. As a believer, victory is always, always possible. We do not have to give in to sin. We do not have to give in to the devil. Now, let me tell you how this is possible, all right? Uh, it's not possible uh, in your own effort. It's not possible through white knuckling it. The answer isn't just to suck it up and to try harder. I, I, I hope that you, you know this uh, here. Here at Harmony, we do not believe that the answer to, to, to victory in the Christian life is simply trying harder. It's not. The answer, right, let me give you the answer. The answer to victory in the Christian life is to remember, rejoice, and rest in the gospel. Victory in the Christian life does not come from trying harder. It comes from remembering, rejoicing, and resting in the truths of the gospel. That's why Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is so important because we're given so clearly these truths of the gospel and it's as we remember them, as we rejoice in them, and as we rest moment by moment and day by day in these truths that we find victory in the Christian life. Why am I so passionate about the gospel? You know, a little bit ago, why am I so encourage you to rejoice in the gospel? Because that's where the power in the Christian life comes from. It doesn't come from inside of us, okay? It comes from him. And as we remember and rejoice and rest in what he has done. So, so let's dig into these gospel truths a little bit more. All right? In verses four through seven, Paul gives us three reasons why God saved us. Three reasons. And all of these reasons, all of these things have to do with God's character, with who he is. And I just want to tell you, I'm really hoping that this will change the way some of you think about God. Some of you have rejected God or you've shied away from him because you have a faulty idea of what he is really like. Maybe you think God is harsh or judgmental or unapproachable or distant. I want to show you that that's not the case at all. Instead, God is merciful, God is loving, and God is kind. Merciful, loving, and kind. Let's briefly talk about each of these things. In verse 4, Paul says that God saves us because he's 
rich in mercy. The Bible repeatedly characterizes God in this way. In fact, I think it's fair to say that mercy is one of God's chief characteristics. For example, here's what we're told in Micah 7, uh, 18. The prophet says this, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but get this, but delight to show mercy. God delights to show mercy. God takes pleasure in showing mercy. So if I were to ask you today, what brings God joy and pleasure? Do you know what the the average Christian, their first response would be? It would be for me to obey him. And I just want to tell you, God does want you to obey him. But there is something that God gets greater delight and joy in, is that is giving mercy to those who don't obey him. That's what he delights in. That's what he takes pleasure in. So so you need to hear this today. Maybe you've been running from God for a long, long time because you're afraid of him. You're afraid that he in no way will show you mercy, that you've got a messed up past. You've got all kinds of issues and problems. And because of those things, you keep running and running as far and as fast as you can. I just want to tell you today that what you need to do is turn around and run in the opposite direction because what you will find in that direction is a God who has arms wide open ready to receive you, to take you. He wants to show you mercy. He would delight in doing so today. Not only God is merciful, though, he's also loving. And Paul goes on to say in verse four that God saves us because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, I don't know if the word great there is um, a good word or not. I mean, it is a good word, but I don't know if it's an adequate word. Because I don't know if it's possible to be able to explain how great the love that God showed us on the cross actually is. You know, there are a lot of people who have uh, tried to describe this love down through the ages. Uh, perhaps none better than Frederick Lehman is him. The love of God is greater far. It goes like this. It's an old hymn. You may not be familiar with it, but it says this. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. That's God's love for each and every single one of you. His love for you is inexhaustible, it's unfathomable, and it is unsearchable. He loves you more than you can ever begin to imagine. Finally, God saves us because he's kind. I find verse seven to be one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. I think it's worth looking at here. Notice what Paul says. He says, so that... So why did God save you? So that in the coming ages, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Just friends, think about how amazing this is, is that as amazing as God's grace is to us, and it has been and is right now, it's only going to get better. That we're gonna have all eternity where we will not be able to even begin to exhaust the immeasurable riches of God's grace. 
How amazing is that going to be? Now, notice that he says it's the uh, immeasurable riches of grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So let's talk about this word kindness here for a minute because you probably in reading this kind of skip over that word and you don't really grab hold of what Paul's actually saying there because when we use the word kind, we think of like sweet and nice, right? So so we say, oh, she's so uh, kind and sweet and nice. That's not what the word means here though. It's not talking about sentiment. It's actually talking about costly action. As Tim Keller puts it, The word kindness here means not just saying I love you, but putting your money where your mouth is, putting your life where your mouth is, doing something costly. You see, our salvation was very costly to God. For for him to be merciful, loving, and kind to us, all right, it was very costly to him. Note again that it says that it's his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, what does this mean? It means that when we were sons of disobedience, when we were children of wrath, God sent his son to come and take the wrath that we deserve so that we could be saved. So that in ages to come, we might experience the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So just think about this. We were enemies of God. We were children of wrath. We were people who rebelled against him. We were without him. We were separated. We were without Christ. We were completely helpless and hopeless. And yet, what did God decide to do? He decided to show us mercy, love, and kindness. But in order to do that, what did he have to do? He had to pay the price. Somebody had to pay the price. And instead of us paying the price, he paid the price for us. So in closing, here's how we can summarize everything that we talked about today. Or rather, uh, here's how John Stott summarizes it. In his classic book, The Cross of Christ, Stott says this. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Now, we're going to leave this up here and just going to walk through this with you, okay? Because if you get this, you get Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and you, you really get the Bible, okay? So, so the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of sin is man, you and me, putting ourselves in God's place. We put ourselves in God's place. Therefore, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. Told you before, right? Here here at Harmony, we have a four-word summary of the gospel. Do you remember? Jesus in my place. That's the gospel. Jesus in my place. He substituted himself for us. You see, when, when we pushed him off the throne, all right? When we pushed him off the throne, God sent Jesus to come and to take that penalty, to take the wrath that we deserved. He took our place. And because he took our place, we are seated now with him in heaven. Jesus in our place. That, my friends, is the gospel. That is what we need to remember. That is what we need to rejoice in. That is what we need to rest in. Let's do that every single day. Pray with me.